Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Mentium Matters podcast, where we talk about leadership, life, and the transformative power of mentoring. I'm Megan Cummings-Kruger, and today our conversation is going to be focused on the power of resilience that reaches across cultures. My guest is Nabil Rad, Vice President of Data Science at GM Financial, where he leads the development of data and analytical solutions that support strategic and operational initiatives across the globe. Throughout his career, holding a variety of leadership roles at organizations including Ford Credit and Citibank, Nabil has gained extensive experience in leading business transformation, building globally distributed teams, and developing organizational capabilities in the digital space. Nabil holds a BS in computer science, an MBA, and a PhD in industrial and systems engineering. He enjoys teaching and speaking in areas related to data science, computer science, risk management, and leadership. He serves as a global mentor across several organizations and serves on several advisory boards in higher education and nonprofits. Nabil and his wife currently reside in Dallas-Fort Worth area and are the proud parents of two adult sons. I'll also share this because it's just so impressive to me that his wife speaks seven languages. Nabil first joined the Mentium community as a mentor in 2012 and is currently mentoring his fifth mentee. We are delighted to have him as our mentoring partner, and we're delighted to have him here as a guest today. Welcome, Nabil. Thank you, Megan. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. So my first question for you, I want to zero in on what I know is um, one of the many unique things about you as a person and as a leader, and that is that you were really fortunate to have a very global upbringing. Uh, you lived in a number of cultures and countries during your childhood, which I suppose is probably more likely when you have a mother from Connecticut and a father from Lebanon. So how do you feel that uh, that early multicultural exposure has benefited you? Well, it's, you know, it's, sometimes it's really tough to, to describe because what, uh, what came normal to me from an early age stuck with me. And, and that is, I never saw differences at the people level growing up. In many ways, uh, differences were invisible to me. And I didn't feel that others around me were different. I saw people are similar to me in the sense that they have different experiences. So I guess I've learned from an early age that I need to look for those different perspectives. And it, it became a source of enrichment and uh, also a source of challenge to how I can continue to expand my understanding of situations, peoples, and, and cultures around me. And uh, also, I've learned to accept that my thinking is never final. What I know today isn't final, it's not absolute, and that I always need to evolve and adjust my thinking as I interact with, uh, with others. And you know, to, to me, right or wrong or good or bad are terrible absolutes that you know, it's, uh, that's not how we should be thinking. And it, at, at some level, and this might sound strange, Megan, but I feel it gave me from an early age a, a peace of mind in the sense that, you know, being in different situations, you feel comfortable uh, in, in, in those situations that seem even foreign to me, right? I mean, I, I could... 
I've been exposed to many different cultures, but not all of them, right? And so you're exposed always to something new and, and you feel this peace in you that, yeah, this is, this is not threatening as an experience, uh, even though I, I might feel, you know, completely unprepared. So you, you welcome, you welcome that. And, you know, maybe, maybe professionally, what uh, this did for me is that it helped me focus on hiring people that compliment me people that are comfortable with who they are and who are curious, feeling comfortable with not knowing all the answers, suspending judgment and balancing understanding with promoting my own views, right? I mean, it's, uh, that's, that's to me is a, is a key habit, if I can call it this way, that I, I really focused on. And also part of this, this experience is balancing or managing problem solving with creating. And, and to me, problem solving is about making the status quo better and creating is breaking away from the status quo and replacing it with something entirely different. And so I've always been conscious about when, when I hire, when I work with people, are they problem solvers or are they creators? Right, not not that I want to bend them in specific uh, buckets, but try to understand their their perspectives around those two elements. So it's been a, a fascinating journey, and I can tell you every time I would live in a foreign country and then maybe come back to the U.S., the downside is that you come back with a lot of stories, things you want to share with people, and you, you come back uh, almost as a stranger. Yeah. Yeah. In, in that in that sense, right? Yeah, because you, you you change so quickly through those experiences, and so you, you learn as well to kind of know how to reconnect with those people that you maybe left behind. Absolutely, that was such a rich conversation, and there are several things that that made me think of. There's a great Rumi quote that talks about out beyond the fields, there is a place beyond right and wrong, and I will meet you there. And it just, I kept thinking of that quote, even though I'm butchering it, uh, when you were talking about all of that. But it also reminded me of, I read a really interesting article about Barack Obama years ago, and it talked about how when you grow up in more than two cultures, you know, I don't know if it's tri-culture or if I'm making a word up here, but just when you are able to have more than, and perhaps it is kind of that black and white, you know, one versus the other, but when you have a multitude of cultures, it does impact you in that you are always more thoughtful and you were really looking at it from different angles, as you say, before making any kind of decision. And that sounds like, uh, it, at least that was part of your experience. You know, absolutely. And I think, you know, sometimes you feel like you're taking longer than you should in making decisions. And, you know, to others, it might seem this way. And, and I'm very careful to make sure I understand the urgency of, of certain situations and the need for, for really uh, quick decision making. But I think most situations afford you that luxury, if I can call it this way, to understand other perspectives, to to kind of enrich your thinking, you know, with the, with the presence and perspectives of, uh, of others, you know, I think it makes you a better decision maker, right? I mean, you can still, in a situation where you hold the final decision making authority, you can, you can still hold that, but 
suspend your own kind of judgment, if you will, and suspend your own influence so that others are not swayed by what they think you're going to say or what what your view is. Uh, so I, I think that's another critical element of, of that process. Absolutely. And, you know, for the benefit of the audience, I do want to continue to broaden your biography because after your childhood, of course, you continue to build upon all of your cultural experiences throughout your professional career. I know you've lived in, among other places, uh, France, Australia, uh, where you were leading teams also in Africa and Asia Pacific region. You were living and leading teams in India. And then, of course, you were living in a number of regions in the United States. So I think anyone listening would really appreciate hearing any story or learning that comes to your mind when you think about communicating or working across cultures. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, you know, I mean, I'll share a few experiences with you, but also I want to make sure I mention that uh, there is no one size fits all, right? There is no recipe to how you deal with different cultural uh, experiences. Obviously, the very nature of culture is, is that it's varied and diverse and rich. And so one of the assignments, you know, that, that I had was in Australia, where I was managing management for Asia Pacific and Africa. And one interesting experience that I went through, and I will not mention the country in this case, but it was it was a country where actually I led the implementation of a credit company and I was responsible for establishing the risk function. And then after a few months, one of the credit analysts who was approving auto loans discovered that one of the applications had on it a fraudulent bank statement. And so typically, anytime you have a situation like this, you're supposed to escalate it to headquarters in the U.S., and there's a special executive kind of communication you have to put in place. So it, it is a big deal when that happens. And so I was talking with the risk manager in that in that country and obviously you know i hired that risk manager i hired you know i played a role in in setting up that risk function so she was telling me that this is not a big deal and that all what they were doing is beautifying their financial position and so when i was having that conversation with her i had with me the uh, director of operations uh, for the region as well so so he was responsible for operations I was responsible for risk management. So he was very upset. And, you know, and afterwards, you know, he, he said to me that, you know, we should probably uh, fire that risk manager because she's not fit for that role. And, and he was also kind of a bit unhappy with me because I was so patient with her in terms of trying to understand her thinking. And, and that's really what I needed to understand is, is capture her thought process before rendering in any kind of conclusion, if you will. And, and so... Over the next few weeks, I worked with her to help her understand the impact of us making wrong decisions. So I, I, I disconnected, if you will, that incident and basically talked about, in general, what happens if we make wrong credit decisions. And, and I think gradually she, she started understanding what, where I was coming from. And I said, you know, obviously in this case, 
you know, we could end up making a wrong decision. Maybe that person is able to afford that vehicle. Maybe he isn't, right? But how do we know? And I said, one of the things I'd like to do, I'd like to put on you the, the challenge of helping us understand how, we do, how do we assess people in, in your country? What should be the measure by which we should assess credit? Um, and obviously, this, this was an emerging market. So one of the things she recommended was to conduct for certain individuals a home visit. And so we implemented that practice. And you know I think we turned something that, I guess, all individuals in headquarters looked at as a very serious violation, as a as a firing offense, if you will, we turned it into a very positive situation where she was very proactive from that point on in terms of finding ways to help us manage credit risk. So that's that's just one one example that stuck with me that could have turned entirely different from the way it ended up unfolding. I love that example because it really illustrates so well how important it is to try and understand and not to have that judgment, good, bad, as you were saying earlier, immediate, but to look for you know all the gray area that exists in between and understanding, especially across cultures, what the purpose was, what the traditions are, and then understanding and then working with her and getting her insight. That's such a great example. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's all about being patient and uh, you know people accuse me as i mentioned of being too patient sometimes but you know you have to use time to your advantage in, in those cases right when when you do have time to me that's probably was one of the the most enriching period of, of my life working in that region because i had responsibility for over i think it was about 18 countries and each one obviously was unique in its in its own way and and you know, one of the things that I really needed to do as well is to help. So we had a location risk manager in every country, and I made it a point to send them on assignments. So I would rotate them. So someone who is, I don't know, in China, I would send them to India, you know, to work there for a year. These were six months to one year assignments where they actually kind of swapped chairs with their counterparts in that in that country. And I think it worked beautifully in terms of helping them understand what others are, are doing, why things are done the way they are. And so that's another story, if, if you will, in terms of how you can look at a region and try to make it make it better in the sense that, you know, you're kind of not necessarily optimizing the parts, but you're optimizing the whole system that works in that region. It really reminds me of the essence of mentoring in that uh, it really comes down to seeing in another person's eyes, seeing through their culture, seeing through their daily experience. It seems like it's, it's getting at that same essence. Another piece I wanted to touch on, because I remember you talking about this earlier, is I know that you also along with patients, have been very intentional about showing great respect for difference. And I remember, and I can't remember which country you're in, it might have been India, but I remember you shared with me that you began to learn the language uh, 
literally out of respect for the culture or perhaps keeping up with your wife, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but I imagine that that effort was greatly appreciated. It really was. And, uh, you know, I give the credit, obviously, to the team who not only welcomed my, my gesture, but encouraged me to get better and better at it. So, and I think, as I mentioned to you before, it's really tough to lead without connecting first. And the language, obviously, is such a powerful way of connecting. It's, it's a window into any culture. And so, yes, I, I had a tutor actually come to my office uh, three days a week, and they would love it. The team would love it when they would see the tutor come. And, you know, it was a very visible uh, visible process to them as well. But, yeah, and, and then the team, I mean, it was a very young team. It just happened to be that, those are the demographics of the time in, in India. But so, yeah, I mean, I, I learned Tamil, and I would kick off meetings in, in Tamil. They would play games and, you know, hold, you know, posters and ask me to read them. And then, uh, you know, obviously I had great support from my wife. Uh, I think I mentioned to you one time I came home and she had the dinner menu all in Tamil. And she said, if you can read it, you have dinner. And so it's good. It's good to have that support system, um, you know, around you. Uh, but I'm very grateful for that experience. And in fact, even yesterday, one of them reached out to me. So there's never really, and it's been, I don't know now, five years, there's probably not a week that I don't hear from them. And to me, it shows you the power of, of connecting, of, of respecting. And, and what's, what's really amazing about that is that they, it encourages them to share more stories with you. It encourages them to share their own culture and experiences. You know, I've been to probably over 60 weddings when I was on assignment there. And it was amazing. I mean, I've, I've learned I've learned so much through that. Well, and you said something at the beginning of your response. You said, you can't lead until you connect. As I've worked with you over the years, there are a number of phrases you say that I find so interesting that I actually want to follow up with, with you. One of the observations you shared, it is easier to develop individuals. It is tougher to develop teams. Can you speak a little more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to me, I've seen many cases throughout my career, very smart individuals who make very bad decisions. So it's not automatically an automatic outcome to have good decisions from, from uh, smart people. Uh, so then there, there is that element of collective intelligence that comes into play. Uh, and obviously, that's at many levels, including cultural and and so I found throughout my career that, yes, you do need to invest in developing individuals, but also you need to focus on developing teams and how individuals make decisions together as, as, as teams. And so one of the interesting observations that I came across, um, let me let me stick with India for for just a minute was that the business center that I was, I was running in, in India was originally based on a model of cost arbitrage. Basically, the messaging was that, you know, we've done the thinking for you, you go ahead and execute. And as you can imagine, as the 
business center matured and we started realizing that, you know, there's really a lot more potential here beyond cost arbitrage. You can be more efficient. You can provide better customer experience. So suspect that some of it was cultural in terms of following directions. And so I, I wanted to make sure that I leave the business center with individuals who are able to do their own thinking, who are able to take the business forward. And I wanted a local to replace me. And, and so we did several things. One of them was that we established what we called an operating map. And that map basically had three tenets to it. One was, we called it operational excellence, which focused on how do you deliver a quality product? The other one focused on change and how do you identify uh, the next evolution of the business center? And then the third one focused on understanding the business and the uh, environment. So these were kind of thinking connections, if you want to call them this way. And we developed a course that every member of the team would, would go through. And then we had these small circles where we discussed them. But the unique thing about these circles was that any member of the team was able to and, and, and asked to modify the content of that course to evolve it over time so that the content is not static and it reflects the awakening, if you will, and, and, and their contributions and how they want to evolve that business center. And uh, it was an amazing experience. We could see people kind of come out of their shells, if you will. And they had wonderful ideas, you know, because oftentimes they would hear someone from the U.S. say, you know what, do it this way. I have 30 years of experience in doing this, this process. So we needed them. And, and they had wonderful suggestions, but they started kind of holding back. And so that, that's one of the processes we put in place to help them kind of unlock their, their potential as a team, not, not only as individuals. And it's such a win-win. It helps develop individuals, the team, but also the organization gets that full benefit of that unique diversity of thought. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it, it is, I mean, you, you said it best. It is a win-win for everyone. And in fact, that business center continued to grow after I left, and they're really thriving today. They've, they've added more processes that the company and the executives felt that that business center could never do <laughs> in terms of in terms of decision making and interacting with uh, with customers. So it, it really has been a, a success story. And you know, oftentimes they call me and they say simply, "Thank you for believing in us." Uh, but it's them, yeah. right? It, yeah. It's really shining a light on what they could potentially do. Absolutely. Absolutely. The other uh, expression you've shared with me that I'd love to hear a little bit more about yeah. is uh, apparently you are known as the MacGyver of finding solutions. So I wonder if you could explain <laughs> why you think that is the case that you have become the MacGyver for finding solutions. Well, so some people accuse me of not taking no for an answer. I, I tend to take no as no, not now, <laughs> <laughs> right? But under the right circumstances, that could be yes. But also, I also believe that 
in order to learn, you, you, you need to make progress. You, you, need, you need to kind of continue to take these baby steps. So it's really based on a very simple premise that, you know, progress over perfection. And I uh, remember, again, uh, staying on the theme of that business center in India, I remember think about that business center as individuals supporting processes from all of the countries where we, we had business. So, you know, if someone bought a vehicle in Brazil or in China or in France, that team was actually processing a lot of that work. And so we also had a team that did analytics to help us run the business center. They were very strong in statistics, but they were not very strong in optimizing and, 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 and optimization techniques. So in this case, we needed to understand, okay, well, if you have demand from different countries that is variable, how do you organize the teams? How do you train someone to be able to handle four different processes from different countries and and what are those processes and what are those countries so it's an optimization problem so i did have one open manager position so instead of hiring a manager i went to a local university and i hired a actually i was lucky i must admit i hired a leading professor who was an author in uh, on optimizations and operations research, I hired him for one year to actually come on board on a sabbatical as an employee and basically help us build the capabilities while teaching that group. Huh. And so, you know, when I first ran it by HR, they said, we never do anything like this. But I said, you know, there's a first time for everything. And, and so we did that and it was uh, an incredible success. At some point, in fact, it was here in the U.S., we were building a pricing system and we were working with a vendor. Uh, it was costing us a few million dollars and it was supposed to take two to three years to build it. Well, I, I put together a team of two who basically could work as a startup. And I said, you're a startup. Go and develop this functionality. You're competing against this vendor. Let's see what you can do. And in three months, they developed a, not, not a perfect solution, but a workable solution that helped us implement it and learn and establish a feedback loop to the major project, to the main project, right? And, and so you can always make progress and you don't have to wait for the big bang solutions to take place. So that, that's kind of where that MacGyver kind of <laughs> nickname stuck uh, with well, and it reminds me of a friend of mine who had been working and living in Germany for three years. She was originally from the States, but when she came back, I asked her, you know, what is one cultural difference that you didn't anticipate? Again, you know, tendencies, because again, each person is different. But what she said always fascinated me, and it really reminds me of what you're talking about as well. And she said, you know, in the States, my sense is that, you know, when we're asked something, our inclination is to say yes, but then maybe back away. And she said her experience of Germany overall was that the first inclination was to say no, but then you could work towards yes. 
And it sounds so much to me like, you know, you're not necessarily accepting no as a final answer, <laughs> but maybe a temporary answer. Yeah, I mean, that's such a great example. Well, and it really does impact how you're hearing things again, and it's getting out of that kind of black and white, yes, no kind of mentality. You remind me of, of a little bit of Japan. When I first started working with Japan, you know, we, we had one office there. And I would, again, this was in the context of running risk management. You know, I would travel to, to Japan and we would talk about strategies for improving risk management. And everyone at the table would, you know, you know shake their heads in the affirmative, but nothing would happen. Right, and, and I've learned that no, they're they're not agreeing with you. They're basically acknowledging what you're saying, and and so the hard work was was afterwards. So I had to really kind of develop a, a different approach for working with the Japanese office. Very successful. Once once they agreed, the execution was incredible, but it took it took uh, some work to actually get them to change direction. But it was not very it was not in the open. Not not like Germany. So this also leads me into my next question, which I know we've discussed this uh, briefly before, but the topic of resilience, and certainly you have been very resilient across your career, uh, certainly, with uh, not ever taking no as the final, but I know it's been a real passionate focus of yours. And, you know, in today's world where uh, these are such uniquely challenging times, Resilience has really become a very relevant topic for so many of us. So I'd love you to share a little bit about what you've come to believe and observe about resilience. Yeah, absolutely. And again, resilience can obviously operate at the individual level uh, and also at the team's level. But, you know, let me, let me focus uh, at the team level because, you know, that's probably where we have, you know, the most leverage, if you will. You know, to, to me, the, the whole topic of resilience, and in a way, it, it touches a little bit on the example I gave as related to India and, and kind of getting them to think on their own. But I truly believe through my own experience that resilience in teams can be designed. So you can, you can help design teams for, for resilience. And there was one interesting experiment I did. and. You know, you, you might think of me a little bit as a, as a Mets, uh, but this was a, a case where we needed, there was a, a new analytics team and we needed, it was global, and we needed to ensure that they adapt to changing business situations and that through their own resilience, they're able to help the overall business be resilient because of the focus, the heavy focus on analytics. and so. One of the factors of resilience that I believe works very well is how we connect with others. So c- connections in, in, in a team is, is, is an indicator of resilience. And so in that case, we conducted this experiment where we took Outlook data in terms of your email, and this can be applied to any tool, and we developed a dashboard of your own communication network. So basically, we gave you a tool that would grab all of your email data and give you a network with uh, some metrics about who you connect with. So basically, you can see that, okay, well, for this node, the average response time is, let's say, two minutes. 
maybe for the, for another node it's two hours or maybe three weeks and so it was you know we called it virtual mirrors and basically if you think about it you know sports teams they view videos of their own games we don't view videos of our own communication right and as as you know reflection is is a powerful mechanism so this was a case where we captured their network before this experiment we applied some virtual mirror treatments and there were different different types of virtual mirrors we applied and then we measured their connections about a year to year and a half after those those interventions and it was amazing when people are able to see into their own biases from from communication point of view you know there was uh, one virtual mirror where it it gave them a what if analysis in the sense that if i were to lose these connections what happens to to my network so the vulnerability of my ability to influence basically and, and so that that was that was one experiment we did and it was you know very successful and then and then replicated in in other areas as well so c- connectivity is 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 critical broad participation of individuals is, is essential and, and 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 leadership no one can be good at ev- everything right so i'm a big fan of leadership that rotates so take leadership role in areas where you can play that role and and so in many teams that i've managed i've implemented this concept of rotating leadership so that people have a chance to to demonstrate what they're capable of that was so resilient i have to ask i'm putting you on the spot do any of those mirror practices or exercise come to mind one example and this was a as i mentioned a global team it was interesting when we looked at the connections between the team in india and the team in the us and what we found is that roughly 2% of the people in india basically were engaged in about 80 or 85% of the communication with the US. Wow. Right? And so the question is why, right? And and this was actually before I went to India. So I I I did not have that experience. I did not have the benefit of the experience of having worked in India. And so what we realized is that the us team is really sending very simple requests or analytical projects to india and not not really kind of sending them more modeling projects that required heavier interaction right we also realized that the managers in those in that team they're the ones who were controlling the communication right so they were acting as as a as a broker if you will and so we we changed things and we started connecting people we started putting teams that actually were made up of a mix of people from india from the us you know we had a team in germany as well uh, a team in china it's harder to manage obviously but if you can do it right it's the power of such team you know is 10 times the power of a homogeneous team that doesn't have the perspectives that you get from a global team. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, one other topic I want to touch on because number one I know it's an area uh, that you have had a lot of experience with 
And also because it's a challenge for so many of us with this global pandemic and blurred boundaries between work and life. So could you just share a little about your perspective, your experience around that quest to be balancing work and life? Sure. You know, it's uh, obviously it's uh, it's evolving and, you know, we live in very interesting times right now. But, you know, hearing you mention this, I'm reminded of Colette, you know, the French author who who basically said, you know, what a wonderful life I've had. I only wish I'd realized it sooner. Uh, but but also, I'm, I'm going to add another line that's not part of what she said. Also, what a miserable life I've had. I only wish I knew it sooner. <laughs> right? To, to me, that's yeah. that's kind of, in, in a way, described that the, the essence of what you need to, to do to have that. And it's really not about balance as such. To me, it's about managing yourself. Because if we think about it as, work versus life, it makes it sound almost like good versus bad. You know, again, you know, we we get into these absolutes, which I don't like to to get into. But I can tell you that early in my career, I've struggled in overcoming my own tendency to work long hours and, and push. And I've always taken pleasure in finding a new horizons for my limits. Right. It's like, you know, you're limited by your own expectations of yourself and you see a limit. But then once you exceed it, another limit opens up. I've, I've enjoyed that. But very quickly, I've come to realize that I was kind of like uh, that frog in the boiling water. Right. You know, you, you gradually become numb, gradually become disconnected. And then all of a sudden you find yourself a stranger to your family uh, you find yourself maybe on edge, and you know it's it's not a good place to be. So I I've taught myself the habit of paying attention to small changes in my life and making small corrections versus having to make these big corrections. You know, at the end of the day, you know I I think about this in those terms. I want to contribute professionally. I want to develop. I need to be with my family. I, I want to watch my kids grow. I want to be there for them. I want to build memories and I want to have fun. And so those are kind of the four key items that you know, I've, I've thought about and, and I've tried to, to, to manage. But you have to draw boundaries and you have to, everything that comes to work tends to be an emergency <laughs> when <laughs> reality is not. So you have to learn to say no. You have to learn to push back. And recognize that, you know, your productivity will decline if you don't take a break, if, if you're working, you know, long hours. And that's kind of how, you know, I, I thought about this. I know what I said is very simple, but, you know, to me, this is a case where what's needed is simple. What's, what's hard is how to, how to do it, how to make it stick, how to develop kind of the habit, if you will, of managing yourself. And I've really worked very hard at, you know, establishing my own habit development system over the years. And I think that has been a very key factor in my ability to to manage and learn from my own mistakes. I am sure. Habits are so pivotal in so many ways in ability to be intentional. But also, I love that perspective of doing it in bite size. You know, we overwhelm ourselves with these shoulds. 
But when you make note of those small changes and make those bite size, that's a lot more reachable. Before I ask the final questions, I do want to ask you uh, what else you might want to share with the audience. I know I've been asking you a lot of questions, but overall, is there any additional advice that you would like to share to upcoming leaders, uh, habits that you feel really contributed to your overall success, like what you were just sharing? So what final thoughts would you like to share? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, th I think, you know, back back to habits, I think, you know, maybe in my mind, you know, one of the best advice you know, I can give anyone is develop the habit of making habits. I remember, Megan, when uh, uh, many years ago I, I worked at Citibank and we would go to to training, whether it was technical or, or leadership type of training, I would take the learning and try to kind of change how I think, change what I do. And I've noticed that not many people are doing that. It's like you go to training and most of it is gone. You get excited for a few days, for a few weeks, but then you go back to, to yourself. So I, I said, I want to establish a, a process or a system where I'm more intentional about how I change. And so I started putting on a spreadsheet kind of, you know, what is the habit I want to develop? And I would have a description of that habit. So I'm clear as to what it is and some evidence for me as to just to confirm that I'm actually establishing this habit. And then every day at the end of the day, I would give myself a score from one to five. And you get a you get to think this is crazy, but I still do that today. And I have today a spreadsheet that has over 30 years of data on my habits. <laughs> and, you know, obviously I've learned to tweak it and I've, you know, b being an, an analytics professional, I've enjoyed mining that data to understand my own behavior over time. But it, it's amazing as a way to help you reflect. And so it's a question of whatever works for you, right? But I would highly recommend that anyone develops a, a system for developing habits that to me that's absolutely fundamental because we all have a tendency to kind of revert back to the means so so to speak but to me you know after that it's knowing yourself be honest with yourself in terms of who you are uh, what your weaknesses are opportunities don't protect your image because that's going to impact your learning right if if you try to sound smart in every situation you know, you're not going to ask questions. You're not going to be vulnerable. And, and to me, those are key elements for learning and, and growth. Keep, keep things in perspective. You know, not every situation is life and death. You know, I've seen leaders react to, to circumstances that don't require such an overreaction. Uh, I think it, it influences from the top down how others behave and think around you. Embracing change and adaptability, you've got to do that, obviously. And then serving others and making others better through your words and action. I mean, at the end of the day, to me, that's probably uh, one of my main objectives, uh, that um, kind of my North Star, if you will. Wonderful. It's such a mentoring mentality. I just appreciate all of that insight. So before I close out, I have to ask you, and I'm interested in hearing, what is one favorite quote of yours? You know, there are so many, Megan, but if I had to choose one, I would, I would give you a quote from Gandhi. 
which is live as you were to die tomorrow and then learn as if you were to live forever. And, you know, obviously this can be interpreted in, in many ways and, and, you know, you can bring your own perspective to how to interpret it. But, you know, living as if you were to die tomorrow to me means treating others with respect, focusing on what matters, right? If, if I knew I was going to die, I don't know, a month from now, I would, you know, focus on some, some priorities. So it's about how you work with people. It's about, you know, decency in, in, in many ways. And then learning, as if, as if you were to uh, live forever, I would add to that not only learning, but, but giving and planting maybe seeds to trees you're not going to see. Someone else will enjoy them. But, but to me, that's what this means. It means giving beyond your need to see the, those results. It means continuing to grow and develop because every moment is an opportunity to contribute. Every moment is an opportunity to grow and, and, and help someone else. So when you stop doing that because you feel, that's it, I've reached the age where I need to, I don't know, relax or whatever, right? I don't know. To me, I would stop living if I, if I had that, that mentality. That is wonderful. Very, very fitting. Nabil, I would love to spend about five more hours talking with you, <laughs> but I know I have to bring this to a close. So I want to thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your insight and, and just uh, all the wisdom that you've accrued through all of your experiences, whether it's culture or just individual connections. So thank you so much for your time today. And I want to thank uh, all of you as well who are listening to this Mentium Matters podcast. We have a number of excellent guests like Nabil coming your way. So do make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. And you can also refer to the show notes on the Mentium website for additional resources. We look forward to having you join us next time.